Welcome to the Scott Thompson Show podcast. I'm guest host Rick Samprin. A new investigative analysis from the Toronto Star shows that for-profit nursing homes in Ontario are responsible for higher COVID-19 death rates compared to non-profit and municipal homes. Deliveries of the third COVID-19 vaccine to be approved in Canada could arrive later this week. We'll hear from the co-founder of Moderna. And what is the likelihood of a federal election in Canada during the pandemic? The Scott Thompson Show podcast starts now. Today on the Scott Thompson Show on 900 CHML. This is the Scott Thompson Show on 900 CHML. Rick Samprin in for Scott today. There is a lot on the, uh, well, I was going to say dinner table, but I guess it's more apropos to say lunch table today. But I, I do have to, before we get to our first guest, talk about this story, which is making waves today. A newly released transcript from Ontario's Long-Term Care Commission reveals that the province's long-term care minister was aware of the dangers COVID-19 posed to the sector even before it was declared a global pandemic. It appears more could have been done to protect some of Ontario's most vulnerable people who were living in these long-term care homes. Testimony from Marilee Fullerton, the minister of the sector, shows she was aware of the dangers COVID-19 posed to residents and staff, even before a global pandemic was declared. Transcripts show she pushed for the government to implement measures such as homes being locked down, but that didn't happen for some time. So does this take some of the pressure off Fullerton? Well, I don't think so. I mean, it seems like there's a lot of deflection, there's a lot of excuses. Palliative care physician Dr. Amit Arya says if so much was known early on, why didn't things change? The deaths in the second wave from COVID-19 in long-term care homes in Ontario have actually been worse. There's been a higher death count in the second wave as compared to the first wave. Tina Trajani, Global News. And this dovetails nicely into our top story of the show today. A Toronto Star investigation finds that Ontario's for-profit long-term care homes have reported far more COVID-19 deaths on average than non-profit and municipal facilities. And here to share about what they found is one of the uh, investigative journalists who worked on this incredible piece. Ed Tubb is his name. He's the editor and crime and justice contributor with the Toronto Star, and he joins us now. Ed, good afternoon. How are you? Hi there. Happy to be here. Uh, thanks for joining us. Uh, this is, uh, uh, <laughs> talk about investigative journalism, this is really in-depth. Uh, maybe let's dig into some of the meat and potatoes of this report. Uh, how was this done? Because there's a lot of information here. Yeah, sure. Uh, I mean, I can just go back to, back to where this started. This actually started last year in May. So in May last year, we were coming out of wave one. Uh, of COVID-19. We, we just come out of the devastating, uh, devastating deaths in long-term care. And what we, did, what we did in wave one is we did a fairly simple look at, at where these deaths were happening in, in long-term care homes across Ontario. We took a sort of a home-by-home look at every reported death. And what we found in May last year was that there was far more in for-profit nursing homes. Uh, this is something that is not new. Uh, back in May, we knew that it was four times as many deaths in, in for-profit homes in Ontario than we were seeing in municipal-run homes, like run by the city of Hamilton or the city of Toronto. Uh, and the difference was a, a little bit less stark versus nonprofit homes. But what, what happened in May was that the industry, the for-profit industry, came to us and said that our analysis back then didn't, didn't include things that um, might explain why that difference was so stark. Um, they pointed to things like the local infection rate in the community surrounding these homes or or the age of the homes. A lot of for-profit uh, companies run some of these older homes that have uh, more crowded beds, uh, more crowded uh, rooms and, and things like that. So it took us a while, uh, but what we did this time around after wave two was we looked at all those context factors. We looked at things like um, you know, the, the local community spread. We looked at how old these homes were. We looked at a few other things. 
And we found that even when you look at those uh, those context factors as well, you see the same thing. The for profits are worse, um, kind of across the board. We we did a lot of we did a lot of work on this story, and uh, we found that basically any way you sliced it, um, we found that more people died in for profit nursing homes in Ontario than in nonprofit or municipal homes, and uh, that's kind of that. So when you factored in some of the new elements like those local infection rates, the, the age of the homes, did, did the numbers change a lot or was there you know, a minimal change? They did change. I mean, uh, the, the, the for-profit industry is right that those things are important. Of course, it matters if you know, you're looking at a, a nursing home in Scarborough where everything's hard hit and the, the virus is everywhere versus in a place like, I don't know, Sudbury, right? It does matter. Um, but what we found was that even when you looked at uh, nursing homes in small towns, in places that weren't hit hard by COVID, it was the for-profits that were doing worse. And even in the newer homes, um, you know, the, the industry is right that, that um, uh, for-profit homes are generally a little bit older. Uh, and when they're older, they have, uh, you know, they're, they're built to older standards. So you might have four people in a room, uh, that kind of thing, versus a newer home where most of the, most of the rooms are going to be single people. Um, and that does make it easier for the virus to spread. But even when you compare older homes that are run by charities or, or by cities, the for-profits still performed quite a bit worse. Uh, our, our, it, it wasn't very close in most of the analysis we looked yeah. at. You're still getting pushback from the CEO of the uh, Ontario Long-Term Care Association, Donna Duncan, who uh, is basically saying that she's refuting the STARS findings. Would you care to respond? Uh, yeah. Uh, I mean, uh, she put out a, the, the Ontario Long-Term Care Home Association, which represents most uh, for-profit homes and a few non-profit uh, homes as well, says that our our uh, our analysis still lacks context. And they, they said that uh, it is uh, based on political ideology, um, which is one of the statements they put out. Um, I, I think our statement stands, uh, or sorry, I think our analysis stands. It, it agrees with a lot of, of academic research. We spoke to, uh, we spoke to several experts uh, about our study before we published. We got uh, solid feedback from, uh, from experts on both sides of the issue. Uh, and our finding that for-profits uh, have performed worse agrees with a, a lot of existing uh, research on uh, the differences in things like staffing uh, quality and, and, and other issues that have happened, uh, differences that are, are longstanding from well before the pandemic. So, I mean, we're confident in, in what we've put out. And if, anyone, if anyone's questioning uh, the STARS research, we, we've posted it um, for anyone to look at. Uh, if you go to the STARS study, uh, right down at the bottom, there's a link to our database. You can see exactly what we did. We're chatting with Ed Tubb, editor and crime and justice contributor with the Toronto Star, but the Star's investigative work on Ontario's for-profit long-term care homes have far more COVID-19 deaths on average than non-profit and even municipal facilities. We talked about local infection rates, um, older building designs. You just mentioned staffing. Is there one uh, element or factor that supersedes all else in terms of having more deaths in for-profit homes? Well, I mean, I think one thing to keep in mind is that... Uh, it's not, none of these factors are, are sort of uh, 100% things, right? Like most, most uh, nursing homes, regardless of who owned them, didn't have a death uh, in, the, in the pandemic. So most Ontario nursing homes did kind of okay. Uh, but what we saw is that when you, when you look at all of these factors, there are a few things that stand out. And, uh, you know, the things that stand out are, are community spread, 
um, whether or not the home is set up. So like design, you know, uh, really does, uh, really did impact uh, death rates and ownership appears to have also done it. Uh, what we've shown, I think, is that there is a, there's a real relationship between who runs these homes and what happened in the pandemic. Now, I am not an expert in, in why that might be. Um, there's a whole bunch of research on uh, the differences between for-profit and non-profit uh, facilities and, and the kind of things that that research points to are, are um, you know, staffing quality, staffing pay, um, staffing retention. You know, people might work longer at a, a home run by the city of Hamilton because they get paid better, right? Um, so these are the kind of things that might lead to uh, your uh, your nursing home being better able to handle uh, an outbreak. Uh, you know, even even in the long-term care uh, commission uh, testimony that Minister Fullerton gave, she pointed to some of the things that that make it that made it uh, easier for for municipal homes to to weather the the virus. And one of those things was that if you are a home run by uh, run by the city of Hamilton, the city of Hamilton has. Um, a large number of other staff who work elsewhere that they can bring in to help if there's an outbreak. And if you're talking about a for-profit facility that's just run by a, you know, a, a single person or a, sort of a, a one company without any other facilities to draw from, they are kind of stuck. So there, there are lots of different things that, that ownership would touch on, and uh, we see it in, 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 in the results of our, of our analysis. The provincial NDP has uh, basically said they're going to wipe uh, out for-profit homes if elected. You know, obviously that would take uh, a great amount of effort and time and, and probably even money as well. Uh, does an analysis like this add, just add fuel to that fire? Well, from the NDP perspective, sure it does. Uh, I, I, I don't know that that is something that's particularly doable. Um, you know, I mean, you're talking about a... Uh, a nursing home sector in Ontario that is mostly for profit. So it's not like these are, are a small number of homes that you could relatively easily buy out of out of their positions. These are these are, you know, uh, many, many, many facilities that have a lot of property uh, in places like downtown Toronto that are very expensive. So the cost it would take to buy out the for-profit sector from uh, Ontario's nursing homes would be huge. And if the NDP is, is, is serious about that, then um, there's probably uh, in our research and other stuff, there's, there's a, lot of, uh, a lot of numbers that they can point to that would support their, their plan. I just know that that would be a big, a big thing to do. And I, I think, I think uh, you'll find that a, a lot of people on the other side are, are are making a good point when they say that that is a lot and it's going to be very hard for Ontario to re-envision re its nursing home sector as an entirely nonprofit or, or, or government-run uh, thing. It's, it, it's a big, expensive task to do that. A any plans to uh, conduct a follow-up to this, maybe in, in six to 12 months? Well, I, at this point, what it, the... I, um, the with wave two done and with uh, the vaccines uh, now largely uh, largely um, done in Ontario's nursing homes, I think it's probably quite unlikely that we're going to see a third wave um, be so deadly um, in uh, long-term care homes again in Ontario, which means that our our study is kind of is kind of done. We're 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 at the tail end of wave two. If there are going to be more deaths in nursing homes, it probably won't be as severe as it was. 
uh, through January, which means that, um, you know, I don't know that we're going to be seeing any new uh, any new information for us to be looking at. But if it does come back, then yeah, no, we'll we'll look at we'll look at, uh, at following up. And the industry did point us to a couple of things that weren't part of our our, our most recent uh, work. Uh, if we can find data on that, and if we can run it again, it might be worth uh, checking. Now that said, we we looked at um, seven seven factors in our uh, our our work here, and I would be surprised if anything else came along to change what we found. Well, it's a dynamite report. You can check it out in the Toronto Star. Ed Tubbs is our guest. Thanks for joining us today. Enjoy the rest of the week. Appreciate it. Ed Tubb, editor and crime and justice contributor with the Toronto Star. Yeah, check it out. The headline, for-profit nursing homes in Ontario say ownership has nothing to do with their higher COVID-19 death rates. A star analysis finds that is not the case. And, you know, you look at the data, you look at the numbers, it's pretty black and white. And here's maybe one of the telltale signs that the analysis found that pre-pandemic union staffing data published last year found for-profit homes in Ontario employed 17% fewer full and part-time workers than nonprofit and municipal homes, and they pay them less as well. That's a huge factor. Joining us now is Norm Schlehan, Director of Economic Development for the City of Hamilton, to talk about uh, Hamilton's new COVID concierge program. We bid a good afternoon uh, to Norm. How are you? Great, uh, Rich. How are you doing? Not too bad. Thanks for joining us today. This is uh, this program, this online entity, is really a one-stop place for business uh, owners, if you will, to to visit to get a lot of great information. It is, and uh, I, I should emphasize that not only is it a, an online platform, but it also has a uh, a phone line where uh, businesses can call between eight thirty and four thirty from Monday to Friday uh, for information with respect to uh, operating their businesses during the pandemic and. Uh, uh, you know, this idea, Rick, was born from the uh, Mayor's Recovery, uh, Economic Recovery Task Force. Uh, several of the working groups um, that were put together on, on this task force identified the need for basically finding all this information. Uh, there's too much information. There's information on the federal, provincial, municipal level, uh, funding programs here, safe, you know, infection prevention and control, uh, PPE. It was scattered all over the place. So, so what, what this uh, site really does, and, and the phone number is, it puts it all in one spot. And if uh, if they if an individual needs some greater detail on any one one area, uh, there's a phone number to call as well. How long has this been uh, active for, and what's the response been like? So, it, it, it's uh, it, the concierge in its current form. It was just launched uh, about a week and a half ago. Uh, it's um, it, it's received a decent response so far. Uh, but I should emphasize that. Uh, uh, that this site will really come into play once we move from one one uh, uh, one zone to the next. So as we move from a gray to a red or a red to an orange, that's probably where you're going to see a lot of uptake on this because that's when a lot of those questions come up, Rick, in terms of like, what am I permitted to do in an orange zone versus a red zone and, 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 and the like. So uh, there are a lot of those questions that uh, I think we're going to anticipate that this site and the phone number will see a greater uptake during those times of transition and uh, it's it's we're going to see a, hopefully a lot of those transitions in a positive way as we as we move forward, and and we'll be able to answer those questions uh, as they go as as we work out and finally get to the opening stage. Right now, Hamilton is in the red zone. If we move to the orange zone, is is a lot of the information pertaining to that uh, set of restrictions already on the site, or do you have to update the site in the back end? So that that will be updated on a regular basis. Okay. Uh, but I, I should emphasize that a lot of that information is uh, done in conjunction with uh, with the city so that that uh, uh, and I should emphasize as well that uh, this this site is actually not just a city initiative but was actually 
uh, the recommendation that came out of the task force was for the Hamilton Chamber, the Stony Creek Chamber, and the Flamborough Chamber of Commerce to work collaboratively with the city to develop this site. So there's actually, when you phone the phone number, that you actually, uh, if you want information on, you know, federal grants and, uh, and provincial grants and programs, you press one number. If you want information on small business areas, you press another number. And then if you want those, you know, information on, from public health perspective or from a, uh, uh, you know, operational restrictions, that's where those numbers will go directly to those areas. Whereas before, you know what, uh, you, you didn't know really who to call, but it's basically a concierge. So it's basically press one, two, three, and four to go to those, uh, those respective areas. And in terms of the website, I mean, uh, I'm not a business owner, but it seems really easy to use. Everything is right there in front of you. Yeah, it, it's very navigable. Uh, I mean, it's hamiltoncovidconcierge.ca, and uh, it, it's very easy to go through. It, it's very simple. Uh, a lot of links to the actually where you, where you want to be. So like, like you said before, it, it's a one-stop shop for finding everything for business. And I need to emphasize this is for business um, and uh, uh, because that's uh, it was born out of the recovery task force uh, uh, and, and that, that was focused on economic recovery from a business perspective. And it's not just about, uh, you know, government support or even PPP, PPE, although those two entities or those two uh, scenarios are, are uh, displayed nicely on the site, but, uh, you know, stuff that I wouldn't even think about, like employment and legal support and, uh, you know, public health guidance for workplaces. This, this is information that businesses really need to move forward. And, and you know that information definitely is is floating out there in so many different areas. So it's, it's you're right, uh, and those are the areas that people are going to need as we move uh, move forward and, and get through this pandemic. Uh, anything else that our listeners should know if they are a business owner that, that they that they have to tap into this resource? Uh, you know what? Uh, I'll just repeat the uh, the, the uh, website address again. It's uh, HamiltonCovidConcierge.ca. And if uh, the business owners want to to test out the number, it's nine zero five five two one three nine eight nine. And uh, again, that's from Monday uh, to Friday from 8.30 to 4.30. That's great stuff. Norm, appreciate the time. Good luck with this uh, resource. And uh, hopefully uh, months from now, we'll be talking about what a great help this was. Yeah, let's hope so. All right. Take care. You too. Norm Schlehan is the Director of Economic Development for the City of Hamilton. And again, that website is hamiltoncovidconcierge.ca. And the phone number is 905-521-3989. If you're a business in this community and you're thinking, wow, I got, I got a few questions COVID-related, I'm not quite sure. Again, you can head to that website or go to 905-521-3989. And that phone line is open Monday to Friday, 8.30 a.m. to 4.30 PM uh, and yeah, there's there's a just a ton of info on here from you know the latest news updates regarding COVID nineteen infection prevention and control. Uh, you can learn about PPE and workplace safety. You know if you if you're going from gray lockdown into red as we are, you know what do you need from a PPE standpoint, um, workplace safety, uh, all the government and business supports and assistance that you. Uh, can need are right there at your fingertip. Again, HamiltonCovidConcierge.ca at 905-521-3989. Thumbs up to the City of Hamilton for putting together that uh, tremendous, and other partners, that tremendous uh, website and resource for local businesses. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. Many of the companies have already started uh, producing vaccines that will accommodate for the variants of concern. And in fact, uh, they can do this very quickly. Uh, many of those companies are already starting to test their sort of, uh, let's just call it new and improved vaccines that really take into account the variants of concern. For example, Moderna is already starting to, or they just shipped their vaccine to the United States to start doing safety tests. And, you know, this is the kind of thing where I wouldn't be surprised if in the coming months we start to see 
uh, updated vaccines that will be uh, used as, for example, perhaps boosters or, or, or other new vaccines just to accommodate for the new variants of concern that are circulating. That is Dr. Isaac Bogosh, infectious disease specialist, University of Toronto, part of the uh, Ontario Science Table, uh, advising the government on some of the next steps that uh, we all need to take to flatten the curve, to end the pandemic, to uh, get vaccinated. And uh, that message uh, should uh, continue to be screamed loud and clear. Lots more to come still on the show as well. We'll talk good news. We uh, are at least anticipated to hear good news this week from the government of Canada, because last week we did hear some good news that the AstraZeneca vaccine had been approved by the Public Health Agency of Canada. And uh, there is some intimation that uh, that vaccine could land on Canadian soil as early as Wednesday. And that would be uh, the the latest game changer and a number of game changers during this pandemic. Let's invite in our next guest. His name is Dr. Derek Rossi, co-founder of Moderna, a stem cell biologist and assistant professor in the Department of Stem Cell and Regenerative Biology with Harvard Medical School. Dr. Rossi, how are you today? Oh, I'm very well. Excellent. Well, thanks for joining us. And and we should say uh, thank you for helping develop this vaccine and congratulations as well. What does it feel like? Um, well, you know, I drank the Kool-Aid a long time ago. I founded Moderna at a work that came out of our lab in 2010. Uh, and I, you know, recognize the potential of the technology. So, you know, I've been sort of, you know, Moderna has been very successful, you know, prior to this in terms of its business dealings and making deals with pharma and this and that. People have been uh, congratulating me along the way, but I've always said to them uh, that I'm really just waiting for a day that this technology um, can really, you know, impact human health. And, uh, you know, I said that when that day comes, I feel like I would be able to sort of hang up my hat. Um, And did I foresee that a pandemic would press the gas pedal to you know accelerate things uh as it did over the past year no uh but uh certainly i'm really really uh pleased to see this technology in people i mean it really is providing the light at the end of the tunnel uh, amongst other vaccines of course uh, to get us out of what we've all been suffering from for the past uh, past year uh, there have been so many unbelievable head-scratching moments at times you know we're, we're, we're in a pandemic you know it's sometimes uh, i could be driving down the street thinking man we're, we're in a pandemic like th- this is this is a once in a generation or generations uh, occurrence and in in thinking about that we're also thinking about you know the speed of the development of this life-saving uh, technology and vaccine uh it, it's another wow kind of moment Take us through the development process and, and how you started and, and that aha moment to say, wow, there it is. Well, uh, uh, do you mean from the, from the core technology itself 10 years ago, or do you mean for the, for the, the current vaccine development? Yeah, I, I'm talking about the current vaccine development because it happened lightning quick. Well, it did. Um, well, it, it's interesting, actually. Uh, the you know it starts really with uh, you know an, an outbreak, outbreak of a respiratory disease in Wuhan in late last uh, 2019, I guess. And uh, then the Shanghai Consortia uh, publishes the sequence of the uh, the virus itself. It's a new uh, coronavirus. Publishes that online. And, and at this point, uh, Moderna, the company that I founded, which, by the way, I'm no longer affiliated with, mm-hmm. 
but uh, they had been working on multiple different vaccines throughout the years, Zika, cytomegalovirus, uh, uh, rare strains of influenza. And so when the, uh, when the uh, sequence was first published, they thought, well, here's another great new test for our technology, which hadn't yet, by the way, made it through to an approved product. And so why don't we work on it in the setting of that? And uh, so this was in January of 2020. It was not anywhere near a global pandemic at this point. Uh, rather, it was, hey, this looks like it could break out. Uh, it's in China, starting to move, you know, out of China across borders. But, you know, it hadn't been deemed a pandemic at all. So and it might not have reached pandemic scale. But but, in, you know, Moderna's thinking behind it was, hey, it's a perfect application for the technology. So let's uh, let's start on it. So. The day after the sequence was published, they had a, uh, an mRNA design for the spike protein of the new uh, virus. Uh, and 42 days later, they had a, a, a clinical sample shipped uh, to the National Institutes of Health in America to uh, begin patient trials. Now, of course, the CDC doesn't sort of deem it a pandemic until March, and that's already kind of two months later. Moderna's already shipped their their material to, to start the trial. So, um that's really how it begins, kind of almost in a way fortuitously. Then when it becomes apparent that it's a, a real pandemic that's, you know, when it, when it first emerges, it has a fatality rate of about 2% less now, thank goodness, because we know how to treat people that get it. Uh, but um, it, it, and, and it was spreading globally very quickly. Um, so when that became uh, clear, then what Moderna did, in addition to many of the other companies that jumped in to develop vaccines, and this is a large extent of why it was done so quickly, was that they uh, changed their um, normal protocol for clinical trials. So in, in the U.S. here where I live, though I am Canadian, um, there's three phases of clinical trials, phase one, two, and three, before regulatory approval. And typically what companies do is they run a phase one and they get the results in for the phase one and they say, are we ready to go on to phase two? And then they run a phase two and that's finished. They look at the data and they run, they run their phase three. That, of course, extends the timeline. What the companies did in this case, because of the, you know, the pressing need of the virus, and they did it at risk, actually, financial risk, is that before phase one was completed, they started phase two. And before phase two and phase one was completed, they started phase three. Now, it could be that the data that came in after phase one and two said, well, it actually doesn't work or it's non-safe or something like that, in which case all the money you spent on the phase three would have been for naught. As it turns out, that's not the case. Although some other vaccines from other companies in development failed to be efficacious and were discontinued. But lucky for us that, uh, you know, the lead candidates now that are, you know, emergency approved from BioNTech and Pfizer and Moderna and now AstraZeneca and Johnson & Johnson, these proved to be uh, efficacious and safe and, and can be delivered to the public. But that's really largely why it happened on such a record scale, hmm. not to mention that there was a massive amount of resource pumped into this, both financial and manpower and brain power. Um, and really, that was all necessitated by how uh, serious of a pandemic we were looking at. Also found it fascinating, and not not so much 
the speed of, of which the clinical trials were undertaken and, you know, the efficacy percentages coming in, but also, uh, you know, the, the internal or I guess external competition between companies like Moderna and Pfizer, BioNTech, uh, Novavax, Johnson & Johnson, uh, AstraZeneca, they're all kind of in this race to be first or second or, or get their product, uh, you know, out there to, to help save lives. Um, was there any, you know, talk back and forth, or did you hear any an- anecdotal kind of uh, friendly competition between the companies to, to be first? Well, well, uh, of course, you know, first to market is always a good thing, but quite frankly, and it was said by many of the different companies, and it really is true that, you know, if we're going to uh, immunize the planet, you know, 8 billion people, plus or minus, uh, and, you know, companies and, you know, billions of doses of anything is a very large number and a, a huge uh, manufacturing challenge. So when, you know, Moderna promised, you know, uh, or uh, deemed that it could uh, produce a billion doses this year, that's not enough to protect us from the pandemic. So actually, the companies all were pretty forthcoming in saying, no, we we don't just want us to be to market with this. We need, we really truly do need everybody or as many as possible to succeed. So I think that everybody recognizes from a global global health perspective that that is actually true because to immunize, you know, um, 8 billion people, you just cannot do it with one product because it will take too many years. So thank goodness that, uh, you know, so many uh, different uh, companies put their resource behind it. And I'm actually really pleased that many, many uh, different products are now being approved and, and, and getting out to uh, people. Dr. Derek Rossi is our guest. He's the co-founder of Moderna, a stem cell biologist and assistant professor in the Department of Stem Cell and Regenerative Biology with Harvard Medical School. Uh, we talked about the speed of developing these vaccines. The, the clinical trials we didn't get a lot of information in terms of, you know, failures and successes. It was just, you know, we, here's here's phase one or phase two or phase three, and off we go, and lo and behold, we have a vaccine. Um, what did you hear about the clinical trials in terms of the successes and, and some of the failures? Well, I mean, the success rate of some of the vaccines, you know, in terms of their efficacy and their safety. I mean, their safety is first and foremost, right? That's, that's phase one trials you're looking at. Is this tolerating? And it's dose finding as well. You're looking to uh, see what, what dose can you give the drug. And for drugs like, for example, the um, modified mRNA drug that developed by Moderna and BioNTech, um, Pfizer, that, you know, is a relatively new modality. There was not an approved product. There were many phase one and phase two trials already run for, for uh, different applications, including, by the way, uh, multiple different uh, uh, vaccines. So... Of course, you use all of that uh, knowledge gained in those years to put towards the new effort, obviously. And that actually, by the way, gives the regulatory agencies comfort because they're, they've already been looking at the previous phase one and two that you ran last year and the year before and the year before for, for different uh, indications. So um, that that's actually a good thing that it wasn't actually the first run through because whenever there's a, a new therapeutic modality, there's and deservedly so, um, you know, uh, cautious optimism, but, you know, uh, real, you know, uh, rigor with, hey, is this truly safe and is this really efficacious and, and what can we look, you know, what do we need to look at here? So 
as I said, there's already been, you know, many, many trials run through of these technologies, although not yet one through phase three and all the, all the way through regulatory approval. So that's, that's part of it. And that's similar to the, you know, the adenovirus-based vectors developed by AstraZeneca and others. I mean, there are very few. That's a relatively new technology as well. People don't really talk about that too much. They focus that mainly on mRNA for some reason. But, you know, traditionally vaccines are you know, attenuated virus, the actual viral particle sort of disabled or inactivated or some protein from the, uh, from the uh, virus. This is more traditional vaccines. Uh, but those are, are slow technologies, actually. Uh, and there are many people working on them. But, of course, the first ones to get through to market are these newer technologies that are um, lend themselves to speed, lend themselves to versatility. For example, I, I heard your, your last guest mentioned that, you know, already, you know, variant-specific mRNAs have been made by Moderna and shipped to the NIH for um, clinical trials. That's actually true. Uh, you would never have been able to do that with a traditional vaccine technology. You know, that variant, uh, it's the South African uh, variant, uh, 351, that had first emerged in South Africa in October of last year. And, you know, five days ago, it was uh, a, a variant specific for that was shipped to the NIH. I mean, that's really crazy fast on how quickly you can respond to things. So the good news for us is we've got new technologies at hand that we can deploy because viruses are basically perfect evolutionary units and they will evolve uh, and they evolve quickly and they, boy, oh boy, do they ever have the opportunity to do it because they've infected hundreds of millions of people and you know, the more replications you do, the, the more opportunity there, there is for uh, mutations that, you know, give you some sort of selective advantage. This is what evolving means. So sure enough, we've seen that. And we will continue to see it. This virus is not going away anytime, uh, uh, anytime soon, it, it, it would seem. Uh, regarding the shots, there's there's a number of different variables. So we have one-shot vaccines, we have two-shot vaccines, or two-dose vaccines. We have uh, ones that have to be stored at cold temperatures, others that are not and, and are easily, uh, you know, movable, if you will. Um, is that normal in a vaccine, that you have a, a number of different ways to apply it? No. I mean, like I said, the many of these... You know, now we're seeing new technologies applied for vaccination. Vaccination is a very, very old um, uh, uh, therapeutic modality. It goes back hundreds of years, actually, to uh, the 15th century in China. Um, people started to, to vaccinate against, uh, you know, pox and other, other illnesses, smallpox. Um, so the, the, the sort of second half of vaccination is, all, you know, the, I always think about it in two, two parts. There's the what you're actually trying to elicit from the body, which is an immune response against a foreign, you know, it's called an antigen, but a foreign aspect of, of the pathogen, it's called an antigen. That's always the same, no matter what vaccination um, uh, you're, you're, you're talking about. It's, you know, it's basically harnessing your body's own immune system to do what it normally does, which is recognize self from non-self and respond to that. That's what our bodies do. Um, the front end, though, which is how do you deliver the, the, the antigen itself, that's what we see innovation with in this particular case. Because as I said a little bit earlier, you know, the traditional uh, method is to, um, you know, get the 
virus that you want to immunize against and get a lot of it and inactivate it and then give it to give it to people. They would actually get whole inactivated or, you know, largely attenuated, less um, functional virus so that your immune system now would be recognized, not just one part of the virus, but the whole virus, actually. There it is. And, and that would be the front end. That's a very slow uh, uh, technology. It's a technology, nonetheless, but it's a very slow technology. You have to grow virus in you know massive amounts and inactivate it and make sure it's inactivated. You don't want to be giving a you know the pathogen you know a fully uh, fully fit pathogen back to people. So uh, the new technologies um, have with with that comes different technological sort of uh, constraints, be it temperature, like you said, or you know. The dosing regimen, I think, less so, quite frankly, um, even though some are given as two-shot uh, uh, vaccines and others now one-shot, actually, those that are giving two-shot are essentially giving already giving a booster, which is uh, essentially what the second shot is. Um, if you actually look at the data from the first shot for even Pfizer and BioNTech, there's very clear that um, uh, protection arises even from the first shot. It doesn't require the second shot, but the, certainly the second shot really, really primes the uh, the immune system uh, in a good way. The same would be true of those that were given in just one shot. If you were to give that as a, as, as a two-shot regimen, you'd get a, a booster effect and, and you'd probably have a more robust response. It really is just how the clinical trials were designed. So the Moderna and, and, and uh, Pfizer BioNTech, they just really wanted to make sure that they got, you know, immunoprotection protection, that, that people were protected. So they started with a strategy of, of including a booster in that. It, it wasn't required, but I think it was just, it was a safe thing to do. It was a precautious thing to do. Um, and I think it, it, it paid dividends because if you look at the data in terms of efficacy of those trials, they're so efficacious, probably in part because patients already got their booster. I wish we had a lot more time. Fascinating discussion with Dr. Derek Rossi. Really appreciate the time, and uh, we'll talk to you sometime down the road. Okay, my pleasure. Dr. Derek Rossi, co-founder of Moderna, a stem cell biologist and assistant professor in the Department of Stem Cell and Regenerative Biology with Harvard Medical School. We really appreciate his time today. Lots more still to come here on The Scott Thompson Show, including... Uh, the likelihood, or lack thereof, of a federal election in Canada this year. What is your gut telling you? Well, we'll dive into that next. Throughout this pandemic, we've been, you know, kind of teased with uh, confidence motions in the House of Commons. Certainly a lot of uh, political talk uh, that uh, might be skewered or skewed to uh, electioneering, or at least uh, getting the table set for such a vote during the pandemic. Uh, all parties seem to maintain that they don't want an election during the this COVID-19 crisis. But, uh, you know, there, as I've said, there have been hints that this might just happen. What's the likelihood? Well, let's bring in Dr. Lori Turnbull, director of the School of Public Administration at Dalhousie University. And Dr. Turnbull joins us now. Good afternoon. How are you? Hey, I'm doing great. Thanks. How are you? Not too bad at all. Um so, uh, are we flipping a coin at this point in terms of whether whether there's going to be election or not this year? Oh God! I mean, like I think on some level, um, it really the first priority is public health, and there's no way that, in my view, that that the government could 
could sort of justify getting to a point where we're in an, in an election and we're asking people to put themselves in that position of having to vote when the situation on the ground is different in different jurisdictions in the country, right? In some places, like, you know, I'm, I'm in Halifax. It would be doable here. In some places, it's not. And so, like, I'm not really sure how, how we manage all that. And we don't have enough runway to start planning for online voting or something like that, right? Like, I mean, that would be something that would take a lot, a lot more planning to be able to get that kind of system in place. Can we rely on more mail-in ballots? Sure. But look at the system in, situation in Newfoundland, where when the premier called the election, everything looked fine. And now they've had to move everything to a special ballot. There are all these unanticipated consequences and things they're trying to manage. And that's just not any fun for anybody. And so I can't imagine that anything is going to really happen until we get vaccines. But at the same time, the political imperatives are playing out differently. And I think, you know, the parties are seem to be jostling back and forth about whose fault it would be if we would go to an election. <laughs> but they all seem to have some, you know, there seems to be some interest in it because we keep talking about it. Uh, there was also at one point, you know, elections, successful elections in places like B.C. And I think Saskatchewan had one. Uh, mm-hmm. The Newfoundland-Labrador situation may have thrown a wrench into anyone's plans to hold a national vote because, you know, that that, that was a, a real curveball that they had to field. Yeah, I mean, when the premier, like, in, just backing up, like, in that in that case, the premier of Newfoundland, if you are chosen you end up becoming premier by a leadership convention as opposed to an election. You have to call an election within a year. So Premier Fury had quite a bit of runway left, to be honest. Like his, his year doesn't come up until August. However, when he called it, there were five cases of COVID in the province. And so like from his perspective, I can see why he thought it would be a, like a, a, you know, a reasonable risk to take. But now look what happened. It's totally, you know, a completely different situation. Do you think the impact of very few MPs in the House of Commons is having an impact on any sort of election planning? Um, you know, it could possibly. Like, on the one hand, like, we are seeing a sort of different situation unfold in Ottawa where you see only a handful of MPs on the floor of the House of Commons and most of them are on Zoom. And, you know, to, that might have the effect of... of not- I think we're losing Dr. Laurie Turnbull here, Director of the School of Public Administration and Dalhousie University. Uh, technical producer Will Erskine is going to give her a quick call back to make sure that line is clear, because we do want to hear her views on whether or not that, even though we're in a pandemic, we could be going to the polls and elect a new federal government. We have Dr. Laurie Turnbull back uh, on the phone with us, obviously a technology nerd friend uh, in that sense. But I, I did want to switch over, and you've probably seen Aaron O'Toole's quote-unquote toilet video um Mm. who's he targeting there other than the prime minister (laughs) well yeah yeah true story i mean i think who who he's targeting is people who may not have made up their minds yet and in canada that tends to be a lot of people i mean if you're if you're watching that kind of video as a liberal voter you're rolling your eyes and thinking what in the heck is this guy thinking if you're watching it as a conservative voter you don't need it you're not going to vote for trudeau anyway so he's focusing on the people who may not have made up their minds yet people who he thinks are going to be somehow moved by a message about Trudeau that is like this. And so I don't think, to be honest, this is necessarily something that he's he's thinking is going to cast a wide net and convince a lot of people. He's focusing on a particular kind of voter who um, may be inclined to think something negative about Trudeau personally. 
in uh, in that same kind of um, you know uh, ballpark, I guess the NDP sent out a tweet about a week ago uh, saying it intercepted an early draft of the Biden Trudeau meeting agenda, and it says you won't believe what we found. And it looks like an official agenda, but there's scribbles all over the place, and they're saying you know who made these promises? Uh, you know this isn't my responsibility. OMG, yeah, get your local ice cream and all that kind of stuff. Really making fun of this meeting. The NDP obviously, you know, carries a lot of weight in the House of Commons in terms of their uh, uh, numbers, in terms of, you know, keeping the <laughs> the government of the day alive or dead. Um, what role do you think they're going to play in the next weeks or months ahead? Yeah, I mean, I think in many ways, a lot of eyes are on Jigmeet Singh because he has been the, his, the he and the NDP have been the government's support for the past, you know, since the government was elected in a minority context. And so I think a lot of people are wondering what is going to be the thing that ends up, you know, if there's going to be anything that causes Mr. Singh to say, okay, I can't support this. And so it could be that the government tries to, you know, if they really want to go to election, they engineer this by putting Singh in a situation where he just can't support something that they want to do. On the other hand, Singh doesn't want to be looked look at as being responsible for having election for, for causing an election and there are questions although he denies this there are still questions around whether the NDP can really afford to go to an election and they've got to figure out too if the liberals end up coming out with a budget that promises a lot in terms of aid and rebuilding and is covering a lot of the social safety net pieces that the NDP have come to stand for then Singh has to convince people why would you vote NDP if the liberals are going to give you all this stuff and so it's a tough spot for him is that is that budget that spring budget the next trigger event well, it certainly would be a trigger event in the sense that a budget is always a confidence vote. Mm-hmm. I think we're trying, you know, the parties have to figure out where they want to be when that budget drops. And I wonder if the conservatives and some of the, the you know, methods that they're employing in the House of Commons are trying to push back on that and kind of drag out the clock to a budget. Because once the budget comes down, that's going to be the Liberals' campaign document. And other parties will have to respond to that. But, I mean, do you want to be in the situation of telling Canadians, you know, vote for us, even though the Liberals are out here saying, here are all the ways we're going to rebuild? Now, that's where Aaron O'Toole really has to situate himself. You know, if not this, then what? What are the Conservatives going to do to rebuild after COVID if this is what the Liberals are offering? That's where trust in Aaron O'Toole is really important. In some ways, it doesn't, you know, he can say whatever he wants to say. But, do Canadians trust you to be prime minister to carry this out? Are you letting them get to know you? Are you giving them something that they can sort of attach to and say, yeah, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm going to give you a try with this. And in the situation we're in now, both in terms of public health and the economy, that's a big ask for someone who hasn't been prime minister before, no matter who it is. What's your best guess on what's being talked about right now in the Aaron O'Toole war room, per se, in terms of an upcoming election? What, what is the strategy? I mean, I think a big, they know that, um, I, well, they, they would have to know that, that Justin Trudeau is a very, very skilled campaigner. And if we get to a point to an election, he tends to do really well. Now, obviously, he's not totally invincible, and the last campaign didn't go as well as his first campaign. But at the same time, when we are dropped in campaign mode, he tends to perform quite well. And so they have to think about the dynamics of the campaign itself and the fact that a lot of people, you know, are like, what is going to be driving their vote is going to be, you know, the kinds of questions like what what's the job situation? Um, what is healthcare going to look like in Canada? Are we going to move toward, you know, things like childcare, pharmacare? Like I think that the election is really going to be about those big policy pieces. And so it's not necessarily going to be enough for people to start doubting Justin Trudeau because at this point he is he's a known commodity and Aaron O'Toole's not. I think what Aaron O'Toole really has to do, or not as much, I think what he really has to do is drill down on what is the conservative response 
to the major questions that we're facing right now, not just po- policy, but also in terms of issues like leadership, systemic discrimination. You know, where where is the Conservative Party on this kind of stuff? I think that's his major challenge. Coupled with a pretty respectable approval rating, especially during the pandemic, it sounds like the Prime Minister's team is going to be a tough nut to crack. Uh, obviously, you know, the, the, the PCs will continue to rule the roost out West. Uh, the mm-hmm. the Bloc and Liberals will fight over Quebec, as they usually do. Atlantic Canada is usually, a, you know, a toss-up. And, and the 905-416 is usually the battleground that's won or lost in terms of uh, the House of Commons. Um, in, in saying all that, uh, you know, is it the devil that you know as opposed to the one that you don't in terms of uh, the electoral ship? I mean, I think in a lot of cases at the provincial level, we've seen incumbents be returned in in greater capacity than they were before. And that's not the pandemic isn't the only reason for that. But in some ways, when we're in a crisis, it is, you know, it's understandable why someone would think, okay, I'm going to go with what I know as opposed to take a shot with something that I don't. But I think your breakdown of the regional complexity of politics in Canada is actually quite accurate. I mean, like, it's true. You know, right now, the Liberals have almost all of the seats in Atlantic Canada. Quebec is, as you say, a toss-up. The West is going to go conservative. So what's happening in Ontario? And that's where, you know, like, the truth of it is that Aaron O'Toole really has to focus on those regions of the province where he can, where he can sort of get some leverage and get some votes maxed out. I guess it's safe to say, and we're kind of rehashing this, but, you know, it seems like uh, Trudeau and O'Toole and Singh and, and, and the rest of the, the, the ladies and gentlemen want an election. No one wants to call the election or at least right. force the, the election. Um, how much of a stain will there be on the leader or the party that does actually you know, pull the trigger? I think it depends on, on that. That depends to a large extent on whether the campaign is carried out smoothly and if we don't have a real COVID-related uh, disruptor. Right. Like in, in Newfoundland, you know, that's kind of the, this whole thing has been completely turned on its head because of the, the situation with COVID that wasn't happening at the beginning of the call. I think if, you know, regardless of who kind of ends up being responsible or whether it's a kind of combined responsibility between the leaders that they decide enough's enough, if the campaign goes off without too many COVID hiccups, then I think voters will vote the way they want and not necessarily be look for some, looking for someone to punish. However, you know, if if things go sideways and some votes are totally, you know, like disrupted and have to move online or have to move to a, ba- a special ballot, like then voters might be really irritated and think, who in the heck got us through and got us to this point, right? <laughs> and so then you might see a bit of a response. It's fascinating stuff, and it'll be fascinating uh, weeks and months ahead. Dr. Lori Turnbull, thanks for the time today. Thank you, too. Take care. Dr. Turnbull is the director of the School of Public Administration at Dalhousie University. The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on 900 CHML. This is the Scott Thompson Podcast, available on Apple Podcasts and Google Podcasts or wherever you get yours. And don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review so you don't miss a thing. I'm Scott Thompson, and thanks for listening.